This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Switcheroos. The Chicago Film Festival. Gumshoe 101. And The Easter Rising. and Commerzars is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's a clever card game of glorious robot revolution where players control the means of production. If you like feeling smart, take that gameplay, awesome card combos, or Soviet robots, Cogs and Commissars is a game you need to check out immediately. For the motherboard! To promote the game's release and support friendly local game stores, Atlas Games has a special promotion! If you buy Cogs and Commissars at Brick and Mortar Game Store and send selfie to Atlas, they mail you special Neon Botsky promo card. Botsky joins existing faction leaders like Simulenin, Gorobachev, and the Artificial Style Intelligence. And not a moment too soon. Buy Cogs and Commissars at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash Botsky. That's Botsky with a Y. Or follow link in show notes. Remember, the revolution will be mechanized. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of, hold on, is that a different Peter, is that like the Peter Frampton's ill-conceived follow-up album somehow? I didn't know that they made that in a gatefold. Anyway, it's welcoming us into the gaming hut. These miniatures, though, they're all like for, I don't know, rifts, I think, and the dice... How, who makes 17-sided dice, Robin, and why are the Doritos clam chowder flavored? I don't know. We'll figure it out later. Sean, Patreon backer Sean, asks us, seeing your review of The Good Place reminded me of an F20 game I ran, and good for you, Sean, using the right, uh, the right terminology to be cool like the kids, where a player became very frustrated to find out that a supposedly valuable ally was actually an agent of their enemy as it made him feel stupid. In quotes, how do you run an everything you thought you knew was wrong moment without the players feeling disempowered or unable to trust anything or stupid? Uh, Robin, do you have suggestions for this? This is sort of a meat and drink for conspiracy games and games with jiggery pokery. Yes, this falls into the, I guess, the broad rubric of things that if you are emulating genre are uh, deep baked into uh, not just uh, as you, you know, conspiracy genres, but uh, metaphysical sitcoms about philosophy that the, the old switcheroo that, that old standby yeah the uh the the rug being pulled out from under you that some players don't care for other examples of course being uh you know mind control or losing agency which is mm-hmm. a staple of all narrative in fact uh, i would argue that almost all narratives are about uh, characters gradually having their agency taken away from them and their uh, number of choices they have available to them slowly winnowing down until they can only act in a particular way. But, of course, that's anathema to a lot of role players, and a lot of uh, role players uh, love it. So it may be, at the end of the day, that a player just never wants to be switcherooed, uh, that they, mm-hmm. just as they are frustrated by watching an idiot plot, uh, they... 
uh, on, on, on television or in the movies that they, uh, especially don't want to be the person who, uh, is ever fooled. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is sort of a gaming version of Fred Williamson syndrome where the, uh, uh, exploitation star Fred Williamson insisted that he could never be beaten in a fight at any time in any movie, which of course ties the scriptwriters' hands behind their backs and perhaps uh, suggests why Fred Williamson's career was limited to drive-ins because he, 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 uh, you know, took that basic narrative thing where the hero gets beat up and then comes back and beats up the bad guy. He took that off, off the table. So let's assume though, uh, for the rest of this, that your uh, player has not taken this off the table as a thing that you can never do because they find it upsetting, but would be, and I think in this case, this may be what we're talking about. Uh, but, uh, let us assume a player who is amenable to a switcheroo, but you just have to, uh, do, do it, it right. right. Um, and so, uh, Ken, do you have a, I have a little anecdote, but do you have, I've talked for a while here. I don't want to buffalo you. Do you have, have, have you pulled a memorable switcheroo on your players that they, uh, were happy to have, uh, switched on them? I mean, I, I run a number of games in which people have hidden agendas all the time. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing. I don't usually do the straight up incredibly by now boring shadow run thing where, Oh my God, is Mr. Johnson a bad guy who saw that coming? But I do run things where putative allies were working for another faction or where the player characters were in a situation that turns out to take on an entirely different cast when they realize they are halfway through someone else's ritual or whatever else. And the way to run those, first of all, is to get player trust. And if you have player trust, then you can crush it later in your, in your right. well, they trust that the narrative payoff to that switcheroo moment is worth pulling a switcheroo, yeah. that it's not something lame. Like Mr. Johnson was the bad guy. Thank goodness. We get a fourth act out of that, but that there will actually be a, a fuller payoff than, than something like that, where now it presents them with different challenges, it allows them to uh, do different things in the game, exercise some player muscles or some character muscles that they hadn't, or just opens up the narrative space so that they are not constrained once they sort of look at it and say, oh, this means more people to loot. Good for us. You know, that, that, uh, that trust that you build up with players by running a fair game that people enjoy or a straight game, I guess I'd say plenty of people enjoy an unfair game. That's uh, a, a hallowed part of dungeoneering. Right. But, but it's fun trust. They, they yeah, trust right. you that, that, that by pulling the rug out from under them, that what's under the rug is also going to be it's fun something and equally awesome. That it's as, not just as, a screw rug. And, uh, the other thing is, uh, to have salted enough clues in the foregoing moments that like when you watch it in a show, it would feel super bony if there was never a clue that that the big switcheroo happened that just it's all of a sudden oh look at that spock was a romulan all along um all right i did not see that coming uh except if you notice in um uh the actual episode where that's a question they do drop little clues that spock might be a romulan so that if they would pulled a big switcheroo it would have been a thing of course he wasn't by the way spoilers so you you drop little clues during the the game narrative so that they can later on say, oh, I get it, switcheroo, that was very clever of the bad guy to have done that to us. And maybe even you allow the players to attempt to resolve those little clues in some way, and, oh, no, that turned out to be a red herring, I wonder what the real answer is. So that they've got them niggling at them when the revelation is, oh, your trusted ally was actually an agent of the necromancer, you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense, I get it. I, I, I feel a narrative satisfaction, even if my characters are dumped into the proverbial or literal boiling oil by that moment, right? The right. 
that you feel as players a payoff that your characters do not have. And in some way, I want to say that GMing, broadly speaking, speaking of our zero rules here, is a lot about trading off player character uh, identification and player character irony. So there's times when seeing the guy march into hell is great. And you're like, this guy's doomed. This is horrible. That's what a lot of call of Cthulhu moments are, but you also need to swip it around so that player character identification can become forefront. And that is the other half of the emotional game board. Thank you for perfectly setting up my anecdote. Good. <laughs> Which That's what we do, to, Robin. Now it's what we do. You. So, uh, there was a, uh, a, a campaign that I, I ran of uh, mage, the Ascension when I was uh, writing a, an adventure for that and needed, to test that and uh there are a couple switcheroos in that now of course by playing mage you are already signing on to have your head tripped around yeah that's the point of the game that's the point of the game uh f20 obviously you may think you're just signing on to uh loot orcs loot orcs and take their treasure uh but uh even so uh the players did something really brilliant which illustrates why uh you know the best switcheroo is an organic switcheroo so they found a uh, a mannequin, a very lifelike mannequin that re- resembled <laughs> one of them in uh, sort of a wax kind of figure in the hideout of, of the bad guys. And they decided that this mannequin was very, very important and they needed to protect it. And they needed to save it. They became yeah. very fixated on the mannequin. That's just good thinking. It is just good thinking. And how do you protect a bad guy mannequin? Well, of course, you take it back and put it in your secret headquarters because... Right. Where is there ever possibly a better place to uh, put your mannequin that you want to keep away from the bad guys than in the heart of your secret base? Of course. Makes sense. Right. Total logic. Yeah. And then uh, when they came back later uh, from one of their missions, they found out that their secret base had been blown, had been totally looted. Everything had been stolen. All the goodies had been stolen. And then all of a sudden, collectively, all the players slapped their foreheads in unison uh, to realize that, oh, wait a minute, the mannequin betrayed us. It was, it was a ringer mannequin, perhaps, uh, put there so that, uh, so that we would put it in our secret headquarters. And the players, uh, you know, are my players always been steeped in that sense of irony. And, uh, they really loved the fact that they had hosed themselves, basically, right? That I had done right. nothing to do that. In fact, I'd given them every indication that this was an evil mannequin <laughs> in mm-hmm. the headquarters of their evil bad guy opponents. So it seemed all the more delicious to them that they had basically, uh, you know, hosed themselves and done something that if they'd been watching it in a serialized television show of their adventures, they would have been, been going, shouting Why and are you saying. doing? Why? Why are you taking the mannequin into your secret head? No, no, you put that in your storage locker on the outskirts of town at best, but. Uh, and so that was, you know, the best, which one of the best switcheroos ever. I th- I've told yeah. my other favorite switcheroo. And, uh, so they enjoyed that uh, sense of it. And they, they didn't feel stupid because they had actually legit made a crazy mistake. So this, in, in, in arguably because what they did was really colossally unwise, they enjoyed it all the more when they realized that they'd just been conceiving the whole situation in in opposite land. Right. And so, and, and that and the core of that is the is that ironic distance that I yeah. talked about, where you, the player, are enjoying the pickle that the character has found themselves in, even though the character, of course, in you know the uh, diegetic reality of the of the thing, is like, oh no, 
we're terrible. How could this have happened to us? Right. And also that was totally organic that I had yeah. not forced them in any way to take the mannequin. I didn't, yeah. you know, do the, well, you know, there's the world might explode if you don't take the mannequin or, you know, there was no nudging or hinting or suggesting of any kind. It was not my a mannequin force that they should do. Yeah. There's no force. And so I, I think to, to back up a step to the technique behind that, uh, to make your switcheroo organic, you maybe don't decide ahead of time, uh, what it is. You just, when you see the potential for great switcheroo, you pull it, but you don't spend episodes trying to carefully engineer your players into a trap that you then close on them, but you then wait for them to do a player character thing and then take advantage of that and build around it. So for example, you might not decide that a particular NPC is going to betray them, but just that an NPC will turn out to be working for the sinister 12 later on. And you will just wait until they do something where it makes sense and drop it in and improvise your way to the switcheroo uh, rather than having a pre-scripted one that then uh, feels like they just walked into a glue trap and now they're stuck on it. Right. Um, I think another thing that you can uh, do to, uh, in addition to hoping the players do something colossally bony, which is not a vain hope, I feel, uh, you can also, um, like I say, leave clues to a, to a thing. Another thing is just, have lots of flexibility. The more moving parts there are in your campaign, the less totally dumb you feel if one of them turns out to have a different meaning. So if, yeah, if the players have only one ally, if it's been the same kindly old man giving them the clues to all the dungeons and giving them the maps and selling them their magic items and performing resurrections, and then you reveal, oh, he's a, He's a resurrected corpse made by the necromancer. And now you're all, every one of you having been raised by him is now a slave to the necromancer. <laughs> well, that, that can feel a little savage because even if you left clues, there's literally nothing else in the environment that you could have been bouncing off of. But if you've got, he's one of several little old men who live in the village and have sort of a hedge wizardy reputation. Right. And you're, and he's the one that you chose to go talk to. Right. Yeah. Or, or, you know, any, and you didn't even have to have pulled a Schrodinger's revenant. It could have literally been that they've been dealing with a lot of NPCs back at town. And this one of them, of course, Oh yeah, he hangs out in graves all the time. Uh, he said he needed it for his resurrection spell. Now that I see it. Yeah, of course he's working for the necromancer. That makes total sense. But fortunately our buddies, the, the, the woodcarver and the bartender and the, uh, sergeant of the town watch are all our friends and will help us out here. Then you can feel like there's a bigger organic part of the world and your entire world is not just you know, been swallowed up by this, uh, hosing, uh, that I think is another thing that the GM can do is, you know, provide not just, uh, different things for them to have chosen among one of which is secretly the necromancer's tool, but to provide them different resources within the moment of having been hosed that they can say, all right, what can we fall back on? Which is again, not necessarily something that happens in a drama where you want to constrain narrative, as you point out, but in role-playing, I think that expanding narrative is always a good thing because it provides uh, both choice, which is good for the player and variety, which is super good for the GM. Uh, and on that note, uh, there's one switcheroo that we will never pull. And that is to uh, betray the kind goodness of our sponsors. So uh, we're going to go and check out a commercial and uh, another expectation. I think listeners can be sure of is that there'll be another segment waiting on the other side. 
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? The grumbling of the attendees in line and the smiling faces of the volunteers tell us that we're in the cinema hut, but not just any cinema hut, but rather a film festival cinema hut. And those fully onto our game here at the podcast know that if it is November, we must be talking about the Chicago International Film Festival, from which Ken is freshly back to tell us of his treasures and wonders. And ironically, this year, uh, I felt it was an up year for TIFF, but you felt it was a... Uh, a little bit of a down t- a down tick for uh, Kiff. Uh, I was three days shorter than normal, which is probably not a good sign. Uh, the founder of the festival, who I'd seen sort of bopping around the last few years, was nowhere to be seen by me, which maybe just means I wasn't at any of the big ticket uh, areas. But while his he is responsible for the sort of overweening amount of uh, French-inflected uh, film in the fest. It is nice to see that guiding hand on the tiller. So maybe it's it just felt a little adrift. Maybe it's just luck of the draw, like you had two years ago at TIFF, and this will be that that uh, 2017 TIFF will have just taken a year to get to Chicago. But I, I did feel like we had to work harder to see good movies. We still didn't see a bunch of terrible movies, but the okay to good to recommended ratio was not where we wanted it to be, I think. Uh, so, and as usual, we're going to uh, pick and choose the things that are uh, most uh, genre-ish. Uh, but your your pinnacle, your masterpiece is one that we're going to talk about in uh, a segment all of its own uh, once I am able to see it, because it's going to be on uh, Netflix. I'm hoping actually that it'll also be on a screen at the Lightbox. Uh, but that's yes. uh, the uh, Orson Welles uh, has made a new movie. Yeah, he has. <laughs> uh, called The Other Side of the Wind. Uh, tell us a little bit about that before we move on. All right. Uh, this uh, was a movie that Orson Welles has basically been making for about six years. He started filming it in 1970. The notion is that a director, an imperious, legendary director, has returned from Europe, from European exile, and is making one last movie, but there's a lot of obstacles in the way, and maybe he won't be able to finish it. And Wells, uh, you know, very much denied that uh, this was a movie about him, <laughs> and then he cast... 
Peter Bogdanovich as the up-and-coming director, uh, the Star is Born character, uh, just to make sure no one thought that it was about him. Yeah, it's about Peter Bogdanovich, surely. Yes. Fortunately, Peter Bogdanovich can act. Yeah, well, he, 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 he can act, um, not as well as John Huston, who is who he got to play himself, uh, although he did he, he did say, you know, he, he thought about playing the part himself just to hammer home the fact that this was not Orson Welles. But anyway, um, uh, he and his, at the time, uh, girlfriend, Oya Kedar, who was a Croatian, uh, I think she was a dancer when he met her, or a sculptor, something not cinematic anyway, but an artist, co-made this film. Uh, she handled a lot of the film within a film that the director is directing and stars in that film as well. Uh, and then he did the incredibly uh, advanced for 1976 found footage segment that takes place at director J.J. Hannaford's 70th birthday party, uh, where he takes a bunch of footage and cuts it all together because, of course, everyone at the party has got a camera and he's invited the film journalism community to come out and film his birthday party. So there's a zillion shots from a zillion different directions, all of them cut together into what approaches a pointillist narrative of the rise and fall of J.J. Hannaford. And there's a, a documentary that goes along uh, with that, which I imagine uh, is also dropping at the same time on Netflix. I assume so. They were made together. Right. So uh, when uh, those come around, uh, you folks, you can anticipate a full Cinema Hut segment on the uh, lost and now found uh, Orson Welles' uh, late masterpiece. Uh, so let's move on to the uh, things that are fully, unequivocally made uh, and released in 2018. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, some crime movies here on your list. And uh, the first one is from Italy by the director of Gamora, Matteo Garone. And the film is called Dog Man. And it's about a, a dog groomer who is led astray into a, a life of crime and danger. Uh, he sort of begins in a life of crime and danger, but it's sort of low-level crime and danger. He's, he's dealing coke to make his ends meet. Uh, we, we assume he screwed up his marriage somehow because he's divorced. His little girl is living with his mom, with her mom. And so he's got this sort of tenuous, but, uh, to him, to himself satisfactory life, uh, on the fringes of society, making, running his dog grooming business. And he's got a buddy who is a brutish thug named Simone, just this sort of gigantic, cruel presence. And Simone, of course, just keeps smashing things until he gets his way. And finally, he smashes his buddy Marcello. And then, you know, what happens when a man is reduced to the status of a dog? Well, uh, nothing good because it's a crime movie. Uh, right. And the main character, Marcello, is played by an actor named Marcello Fonte, who is, you know, sort of Steve Buscemi hitting on all cylinders, uh, all creepy, all oily, all uh, Uriah Heepish all weirdly threatening, just all jammed up in there in one amazing, uh, weird-looking guy. And he is the center of the movie. It's called Dogman. He's in pretty much, I think, every shot, every scene, at least. And his um, uh, his story, it, it, it all run, rides on his back. He does an amazing acting job. And uh, Garone, who is, you know, Gamora, if you saw it, was... A million different characters on five levels of story, very sort of the high and the low, except all about the mob. And then this is just that one guy sort of being screwed down and screwed down and screwed down until uh, something breaks. Uh, and it, it it couldn't be sort of more different than Gamora, but it also is very much the same sort of uh, movie about uh, 
the edge of society and the bad stuff that happens there. Uh, next up is a, uh, our one overlap between mm-hmm. my TIFF list and your SIF list. Well, we have two overlaps, but uh, we're not, since it wasn't recommended, we're not getting to it in this segment. Right, yes. For the, the short list that we're discussing on the show. Yeah. Um, and uh, so now it's your turn to talk about uh, Sweden's Border by Ali Abbasi, uh, while also not giving the game away. Right. I will say that uh, everything you said about it in our previous segment is correct. Um, that uh, Tina is uh, begins in this sort of weirdly social realist film, which rapidly begins to shuffle through a bunch of genres from uh, policier as her talent for sniffing out shame and fear opens up dark, seedy underbelly of um, uh, Swedish society. Right, and this society. is a character who looks somewhat like a, a Neanderthal yes. who works as a customs inspector. Right, similar similar to a Neanderthal. Uh, works as a customs inspector, has uh, a preternatural sense of smell, I think we can say. And then, uh, in addition to that policier element, there's a horror element, I think we can say that without giving too much of the game away. And there's a weird magical realist tone to the whole thing, uh, which I think uh, the director intends to... Do you, you think poke fun at, honor, play with the Swedish uh, genre of film that is people falling in love and having sex in a lake? Uh, because <laughs> that happens. <laughs> There's a lot of lakes and not a lot of other places to go in Sweden. Not so. a lot of other stuff to do in Sweden, I guess. Certainly in film Sweden, not in regular Sweden, which is a lovely uh, country full of exciting a- opportunities and activities, including ones for strange Neanderthal-looking presences, of which the second one, uh, when he shows up, uh, as is uh, traditional in, in film and drama, upsets everyone's apple cart and starts the story going. Uh, this has already been uh, now released in a platform release by the time you hear this, so if you live in a major film center, uh, you may be able to find a screen that is showing. Right. And I will point out that it's adapted from a story by uh, Jan Alvida Linkvist, the guy who wrote Let the Right One In. So it's a strong uh, genre spine that is not ignored. Uh, next up, we have one. It just has a great title to begin with. Uh, it's a French cop comedy by uh, Pierre Salvadori called The Trouble With You. Yeah, the uh, that's the English title. Um, the French title is called En Liberté, which means, I guess, in freedom or something like that. But it's, uh, the trouble with you is a better title because it's more screwball-y and fun. And that's what the movie is, is it's a movie where a woman cop named Yvonne, uh, played by Adele Hanel, who was amazing in it. Uh, the casting directors had to find someone who was cuter than Audrey Tattoo. And imagine how hard that job is, uh, except in France, apparently. You just pick up a phone and there you yeah, have it. There's a that. greenhouse where, they, where they're kept. Yeah, I, I, it's a good greenhouse. They should keep their mannequins there, too. Um, anyway, uh, it's, in, it's set in Marseille, so it's the glamorous Cote d'Azur. Uh, her super cop husband, uh, who she tells bedtime stories to her kid at night, he died in the line of duty um, and uh, has been honored by the city. And in the opening segment, it is this absolute... A tribute to over-the-top action cinema, which is the child story she's telling to her son. And it, it, we discover that, oh, the super cop was actually bent. He was a crook. Uh, and she is makes the moral decision that she has to set this right. And no other decision that she makes is soundly thought out, including probably that one. And the sort of the screwball consequences when the guy that he unjustly put away in prison gets out. 
build to a beautiful, perfectly timed comic crescendo. It is a romance movie. Uh, it's a rom-com. It's a, it's a crime film. It's a philosophical, uh, moral philosophy. It's all those things. The soundtrack is this sort of great go-go jazz, uh, score. It's by, uh, Camille Bazbaz, who I'm not familiar with. I don't know if you know uh, Camille Bazbaz's work in other things, but this was amazingly, uh, uh, peppy and good without being kitschy. It, it, it felt honest and, and true to the movie. It's just, everything works. It's, it, it's terrific. And Adele Hanel, um, uh, as I said before, she should be in everything now. France should just shut down its film industry and devote itself to documenting Adele Hanel looking angry or darling or determined or uh, violent. Terrific. Terrific show. Now, now, Siphon the Wells, which of course is a must see, the other one on your uh, list that I have not seen that I would definitely have programmed had it been at TIFF is Liverleaf from Japan by Isuki Naito. And from what I understand, this is uh, some uh, good old extreme cinema from Japan with mm-hmm. beauty and gore. It is. It is both those things. It is very ukiyo-e in the tradition of those horror block prints where there are blacks and there are reds and there are whites. And there are extraordinarily strong emotions at play. Uh, the story basically is that a transfer student named Haruka, uh, moves to a rural community that is basically shutting down its school because the, the population crash has left there practically no students in this little town. And the administrators just sort of want to get through the day. And that leaves the school open, of course, to the bullies who are mean to the transfer student. And finally, uh, guess what? Um, she snaps and this being uh, based on a manga, her snapping is both not pretty and extremely gorgeous. Uh, the, the, the violence is, um, uh, it's beautifully, it's not even choreographed. It's painted, uh, onto the screen and it's, um, uh, it, it's just a great, great, great revenge flick with that sort of almost to the edges of, of hyper real, not even hyper realism. One of the other side of that canvases hyper something but it's not magical or supernatural it's just straight up last house on the left you know this cannot stand type stuff it's it's gorgeous yes there's a whole uh, subgenre of extreme cinema in japan and also to a lesser extent in uh, taiwan all about school bullying and uh, as if uh, people who went on to film school <laughs> uh, possibly ruthlessly bullied. And, and as everyone. if academics are so incredibly highly valued and prized in both those cultures that uh, the pathologies thereupon are not addressed. Uh, yes, there are a lot of uh, negligent teachers in those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, next up, we have something that you can that's getting a, a wide release, yeah. uh, I think, by the time this drops, actually. Uh, and that's uh, Overlord. Uh, it's American film by Julius Avery. It's from the J.J. Abrams producing stable. And, uh, I'm happy to know, uh, that there's another, uh, weird war movie, uh, out there to join, join a relatively small corpus because, uh, I need reference points for, uh, the war section of the Yellow King. Tell yeah. us about this one. Uh, this one, uh, normally we don't, uh, like you, we don't see movies that are going to get wide release. And of course, uh, Overlord we knew was getting a wide release. It's just that, Again, maybe because they've switched, uh, after dark programmers, maybe because of the luck of the draw, uh, and everyone had to make do with fewer segments. There were fewer after dark films and after dark movies are of course, one of the great joys of film festivals. And this was one of them. So we thought, well, we're going to see it anyway. It doesn't cost any more to see it at the film festival. Let's put it in. It's not like there's a lot of other stuff in that slot. 
So we went and saw it, and as uh, in- intimated previously, time well spent. Very professionally put together. It's a J.J. Abrams production, so everyone knows their knows their bit. Uh, they do their job. Um, the uh, uh, score uh, is by Jed Kurzel. It's 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 not super present. I didn't really notice it at the time, but uh, it, it 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 does its its work. Um, and so, briefly, the the premise is. Oh, the, all right. The the premise basically is uh, during Operation Overlord during D Day, a team of paratroopers. Uh, gets shot up in midair. That's not really a spoiler. It's A in the trailer and B in the first, like, five minutes of the movie. And the survivors regroup to carry out their mission, which is destroy a Nazi radio jammer that is in a church in um, uh, a town in Normandy. But also in the church is a church crypt. And in the crypt are other Nazis who are up to no good. They're doing supernatural experimentation. I feel I can say that without giving anything away. Also, very much in the trailer. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. If you if you watch the trailer, you basically know what's going on. But I I'd like to leave it as open as I could. Um, anyway, the the team that that assembles has to get in touch with not so much the local resistance, but the local the woman who has had it with these Nazis in her uh, plane. And um, uh, you know, they go into the church and trouble ensues. Uh, I want to give a shout out not just to Joe Venadepo, who I mentioned as the the main character, but to Wyatt Russell. The son of Kurt Russell, who, if he is not careful, is going to find himself playing Snake Plissken until he dies. Uh, he is very Kurt Russell-y in this part, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing, because I'm selfish. Well, he's been playing o- Owen Wilson until now, so he yeah. should start expanding his romance. Exactly. Well, if you can combine Owen Wilson and Snake Plissken, you are halfway to movie domination, as far as I'm yeah, concerned. Exactly. Although now I want to see Wes Anderson's um, uh, escape from, you know, Ennui. Yes. It's, uh, it's, uh, very symmetrical. Yeah. Um, the tiny model of New York that he has to hang glide into is actually, it's in the a story. tiny model of, yes. And the, uh, uh, final, uh, title on our list today, uh, is, uh, from the, uh, detective with disabilities subgenre. It's X, the exploited. This is from yes. Hungary. The director's name is Carly Uj Mazaros. And it's about a, a detective who uh, must solve a case while also coping with panic attacks. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it sort of sets up that she is this great, uh, genius, crim- not, not so much criminal profiler, but, uh, detective who can read crime, uh, scene reports and look at the pictures and sort of figure stuff out. But because she's too panic attacked, uh, after her husband's also a cop suicide, uh, to go into the field, she is ignored by her other cop buddies and, uh, relegated to working in the file room. And then she slowly introduces herself uh, into a new cop who's been transferred in from the countryside. And for about two acts, they do a great sort of a Nero Wolf and Archie Goodwin kind of a, a, a riff, which is very, very cool and very interesting. And it sort of presents her disability, but it doesn't give her superpowers because of it. It, it sort of honors the, the place that she's in as a character. And also in an, uh, in addition to that, which would frankly be enough, there is a really good sort of a political conspiracy movie going on that as it builds out is sort of tied to a lot of this stuff. And there's sort of some cool moments back and forth and you're not kind of sure what's going on, but it's, uh, it's very, very strong as a conspiracy movie as well. And Hungary has got a, a really strong domestic, uh, uh, film industry, which I guess you would have to, when you have a language that only is spoken by your country and by nobody else in the world. Um, but they, but they do, 
uh, sort of, uh, thrillers and, and conspiracy movies. Again, post-communist society, they all, they love to work that stuff out in films. Gee, I wonder why conspiracies are relevant to Hungary mm, now. Let's, let's all rub our, our yeah. chins and think. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in this case, uh, sometimes it doesn't work. Budapest Noir was a big disappointment. This is as undisappointing as that one was, uh, a downbeat. So I recommend X the Exploited for that sort of cool detective beat. Over and above its virtues as a as a neat political conspiracy movie. Well, on a note of undisappointment, I think it's time for us to uh, charge this commercial and uh, see what it reveals on the other side. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds can be fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's The Best of Phoenix, Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Keep this podcast strictly in the good place, alongside such Patreon backers as... Phil Bailey. Yadj from Edinburgh. Brian Thomas. Daniel Callahan. And Hyperlexic. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer Louis Sylvester asks Ken and Robin, Gumshoe 101? Question mark. Right. So, so Louis has observed that we talk about Gumshoe a lot on the show, uh, but mm-hmm. we haven't uh, described uh, it in its basics. And so uh, mm, if one of our Patreon enough. backers is going to pay us to uh, give a, him a sales pitch on our game. What can we do but say, but of course. We're not churls. We have a strict, strict no churlishness policy in this podcast. We do. It's very strict. Right. So uh, let us envision uh, 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 Lewis coming toward us at a convention, and he asks us what gumshoe is, and we go into our spiel. And so uh, the basics of the spiel are as follows, is that gumshoe is a game that says it is never interesting to fail to get information, that... Uh, we may all uh, know from other games where you have to roll to get a clue or experience with a situation where, for example, you know that uh, the, uh, you have to go to library and you're looking for a book, and the GM knows that you have to find a particular map in order to know where the ghoul crypt is outside of town and to go 
and have the next step and have the adventure continue to unfold. Uh, and traditionally, if you roll and you succeed at a roll, that's great. You get to keep going. But if you fail, uh, a couple of things happen. Uh, there's a thing that some people say never happens, but in fact, I know does happen because people come up to me at conventions when it happens to them to say, why weren't they playing gumshoe? And I say, that's not my decision, man. Mm-hmm. And so for some people, the adventure just stops dead. Nothing happens. Yeah. You don't get to the ghoul crypt. Uh, and that's what the unwritten rule of any uh, rule set that tells you to roll for information actually says. What really mostly happens, though, is that the GM spends 20 minutes faffing around trying to find another way to get you to the ghoul crypt. And just as in the old saying, uh, the old joke, Do- uh, doctor, it hurts when I do this, don't do this. Gumshoe Stop says, doing that. don't do that. Uh, so in Gumshoe, if you have an investigative ability, one that gives you information, uh, and you have that ability and you go to the right place, you do everything exactly the same, except you don't roll. You just automatically get that information. Now, once we've done that, that enables us to actually build out mysteries that are much more like the ones that you find in TV or movies, or in fact in real life, where the investigators in fact have a lot of information and the question is not, what's this one clue that gets me from uh, stage A to stage B, but rather, what's really going on? How do I piece these all together? How do I uh, find uh, bits of information? Now, there's other parts of the, of, of the role-playing experience where failure is just as interesting uh, albeit horrible, more so sometimes than success. So, for example, if you are trying to fix the plane as it is plummeting down uh, into the mountains, or if you're trying to climb the fence to get away from the rabid dogs, or even or if you're trying to shoot the ghoul, trying to shoot the ghoul, the or uh, <laughs> determine uh, whether you happen to bring along uh, replacement batteries for your flashlight, uh, you um, make a roll on a, it's a single d6. And uh, in that case, with those abilities, we call them general abilities, you have a set number of points that you've purchased in the pool of each ability, and you can spend those to augment your role so that uh, your uh, chance of uh, beating the threshold, which is usually but not always four, increases. And so and what you're doing there is you're deciding wh- when you really want to succeed, when it really matters to you, and when your character gets spotlight time. And that's the basic spiel uh, when it comes to the, the core... Uh, rules, and then we have many different versions of Gumshoe uh, that uh, each present a different subgenre of uh, mystery and have uh, different uh, rules and filigrees and things that uh, bring the subgenre part of it to life. But that, in a nutshell, is Gumshoe. So the very first Gumshoe game uh, is by me. It's called the Esoterrorist, and it's modern day uh, agents uh, in a part of a grand worldwide benevolent conspiracy to fight occult forces. Uh, then there is uh, Fear Itself, uh, which is ordinary people in horror movie situations. And then Ken, uh, you have this uh, designed what is basically the kind of flagship of Gumshoe because it's something that immediately made sense to people as an adaptation of uh, something else. Right. Yeah, I did uh, Trail of Cthulhu, which was an adaptation of Call of Cthulhu. And when I read As a Terrorists, I was initially very sad and disappointed because the high concept of As a Terrorists, that by doing this sort of fake magic, you create real demons, 
uh, was sort of my high concept for a modern day mythos game, uh, that by sort of, uh, ob- obsessively trying to recreate these Lovecraftian situations, horrible Lovecraftian truths begin to emerge, uh, from them. I basically had come up with the esoterist's high concept and said, this will be a great Cthulhu game. And then Simon says, do Call of Cthulhu in Gumshoe. And it's like, uh, but Robin already did mine. <laughs> so I basically said, well, all right, then I'll just uh, move Call of Cthulhu from the happy jazz age to the grim and terrible 1930s and see what that does. Uh, if that makes it feel different enough. And I also, uh, came up with another couple of, uh, mechanical Phillips, mostly involving scraping off everything that wasn't, uh, Sandy Peterson's first draft and, um, uh, one or two other, uh, hick- jiggeries and or pokeries and made a trail of Cthulhu, which, uh, turns out to have, uh, as you say, uh, met some love and acceptance. I think a lot of that is down to really great supporting material as well as the st- strength of the core concept, which I can barely take credit from for it being me averaging you and Sandy. But, uh, the, the you know, things like my book hounds of London, your dream hounds of Paris, uh, uh, lots of great stuff has been done for trail of Cthulhu. And I think that that's one of the real strengths of the, uh, of the game line is that the supporting material has gone from strength to strength to strength. There has not been, any sort of real um, uh, uh, B-list stuff, uh, even the collections of scenarios, they're they're generally pretty A-list scenarios when they get uh, put together. Right. Um, uh, Knights Black Agents is the thing that I did after that, which is uh, burned spies hunting vampires across Europe, uh, which basically began with me thinking I should run a vampire hunting game, and within about forty-five seconds, having conceived the whole basic concept of it, while I was standing on a train platform in Chicago, waiting for the train and hoping there weren't vampires, basically, and uh, that sort of Jason Bourne versus vampires uh, sensibility turns out to have. Uh, struck at, at, at least something of a nerve, uh, gamer wise. I get lots of good comments about that. Uh, not Trail of Cthulhu, uh, level of presence, but I think, uh, did a pretty strong, uh, job of moving, uh, Gumshoe forward while also, also taking a, a, a genre that everyone sort of knows and, and showing them that, yep, Gumshoe can do that too, uh, which has sort of been our ongoing process as we sort of do this very, very slow tennis game where you lob a game across the net to me and I lob it back to you and then you lob it back to me. Right, because it turns out that almost all adventure subgenres are actually investigative to a, a huge extent. Because they, they at some level involve characters solving a problem. And so often that and problem is... information and finding out what's right. going on. Um, and the uh, the sort of rules thing that uh, Knight's Black Agents does is it gives you much more of a thriller action version of Gumshoe. And so, right. Yeah. Uh, it, it takes the, um, uh, the cinematic dials and turns them up as much as you, as you possibly can. Uh, coming out now, the, uh, Kickstarter backers already have the PDFs in their hot little inbox, hot little, uh, Pelgrane store electronic inboxes. And the, uh, I believe they're being printed even as I speak, uh, is the Yellow King role playing game. Uh, so this is a, a new, uh, take on Gumshoe incorporating uh, different ideas that I've accumulated uh, now that the rule system is uh, 10 years old. It's another horror game, but it's based uh, not just on the uh, original uh, King in Yellow uh, horror stories by uh, Robert Chambers, but on my take on them in a fiction anthology called New Tales of the Yellow Sign. And so that is all about stripping away the Lovecraftian elements that have been grafted onto the Yellow King mythos and then uh, refracting it through four uh, different distinct times slash realities. And so you have this big sort of 
reality spanning campaign when you play it in its full biggest form. Uh, so you can play uh, linked characters who sort of have something to do with each other in uh, 1895 Paris. Uh, then in the 1947 uh, Continental War that is uh, sending weird uh, uh, gothic mecha tanks across the face of Europe or uh, in the present day, but in an alternate reality where the uh, hundred year reign of the uh, sinister Castanes has just ended in America and you were the revolutionaries who uh, overthrew them. And now uh, you are uh, trying to decide what to do with yourselves and also the society that it doesn't yet know what uh, that doesn't remember what democracy is. And then finally, there's one called This is Normal Now, where you play the exact same characters, but in our reality, or is it? Because, of course, the minions of the Yellow King are still sneaking around. The mechanical innovation in that is a different approach, a less hit point-like approach to uh, losing your uh, mental composure or uh, being uh, physically injured. Uh, now you get uh, shock and injury cards that have lingering effects, and you want to make sure that you don't get uh, three or four, depending on how forgiving a version of the game you're playing of them, because if you do, uh, your character leaves play. And so the uh, crunchy bits in Yellow King all revolve around uh, those uh, uh, cards, which have a really fun uh, impact on uh, play. Um, and there are other gumshoe games as well, which we're going to quickly run through. Uh, uh, Ken, tell us a bit about Kevin Culp's Time Watch. Uh, time Watch is uh, basically the game of playing any time travel game you can think of. Uh, Bill and Ted, Doctor Who, uh, Pool Anderson's Time Patrol novels, whatever it is you want to do with time travel. Uh, Kevin was there before you because he used uh, basically, he took your preparedness rule from the original gumshoe and turned it into the, of course I remembered to go back in time and convince this guy's grandfather that I'm his old war buddy so that when his uh, grandson meets me, he will say, you're my grandfather's old war buddy. Of yeah. course I trust you implicitly. Or no, I hit a gun in the wastebasket yesterday and there you go, a gun in the wastebasket. All that fun time travel jiggery pokery having been established as uh, a simple die roll away, you can then run the rest of it as which guys are the evolved super cockroaches trying to make Hitler a thing again or whatever they're, they're up to, those time guys. And you can run whatever kind of uh, time travel adventure you want. That sort of central use of your preparedness skill to juice the time play, the acceptance of creative play, opens it up to uh, be a big, fun romp of a, of a game in its core. Uh, but also you can you know, tweak it to be any kind of time uh, machine game that you can think of. And many, maybe that you can't, but the book is what's... 500 pages long or something like that, 400 pages long. So if you didn't think of it, Kevin did, and he put it in the book. Our space opera game is Ashen Stars. Uh, this is basically, uh, if you imagine a contemporary dark and gritty reboot of your favorite 70s space opera show, uh, this uh, springboards off the idea that things like Star Trek, for example, it's a police procedural. They mm -hmm. uh, they find a mystery, they have to figure out what's going on, and then that leads to a moral dilemma. Uh, but this also strips out all the things that makes actually playing Star Trek in a role-playing context uh, kind of challenging. For example, there's no command structure, so you're a group of right. uh, freelance uh, law enforcement officers who are working contract to contract. They have to maintain their good reputation, so there's that sort of balancing act uh, between being the typical skeevy group of player characters and uh, wanting to make sure that someone will hire you after your, your next assignment. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that, uh, uh, again, gives you the uh, mystery leading to moral dilemma, but in a different spin that is more steeped in the way that 
groups of player characters behave uh, rather than the way that uh, Star Trek uh, officers uh, behave. Uh, there's also The Guy in Reach, if you want a science fiction game that instead is based on a very specific series of science fiction books, and those are the uh, Guy in Reach novels by Jack Vance, which have the same uh, sort of uh, uh, recondite, uh, wry, satirical air as his better-known uh, fantasy stories. And uh, this is sort of a fusion of gumshoe. It's a gumshoe engine with uh, bits and pieces overlaid onto it uh, from uh, the Dying Earth role-playing game and its generic successor, Skullduggery. Uh, Mutant City Blues is our superhero police procedural game. You play members of the uh, uh, heightened crimes investigative unit uh, after uh, it's been about 10 years since 1% of the population got uh, mutant superpowers. Everybody's powers come from the same source. You can isolate where they are on the genome. And so uh, as uh, when you're creating your character, you look at what's called the Quaid diagram and you can uh, purchase uh, powers that are adjacent to one another on this uh, chart that is this big sort of uh, spreading uh, series of different um, mutant powers and uh, you uh, it's too expensive to, to link every single possible superpower um, and this is also an artifact in the game world so your police officers actually have a laminated version of the Quaid diagram when they go to a, a, uh, a crime scene and they see that there is uh, there's some scorch marks, and they perform the test that show them that this is mutant fire, not just regular fire. And also there's some some webbing hanging from the ceiling, and they know this is from a, a web-slinger. Well, uh, web-slinging and fire powers are too far apart on the Quaid diagram for one perpetrator to have them, so you know that you're dealing with two perpetrators. So it sort of takes all of the uh, superhero tropes and integrates them uh, into... Uh, the idea that the people have, the forensics have kind of been figured out and also they've been incorporated into the legal system and, and so forth. So it's and sort of CSI superheroes or law and order superheroes. It's very much law and order superheroes. And, uh, Gar Hanrahan is working on a, uh, an updated edition, uh, that among other things will make, uh, it visually clearer that it's a comic book uh, superhero world and also, uh, will uh, make it possible to play, uh, uh, Jessica Jones style uh, private investigators. Uh, and finally, uh, Pelgrane doesn't make this, but this is a, uh, Evil Hat makes a gumshoe game that you worked on, Ken, called Bubble Gumshoe. Yeah, speaking of private detectives, this, uh, Bubble Gumshoe is the teen detective genre, uh, pioneered by the great Mildred Wirt Benson, who wrote under the name of Carolyn Keene, uh, the first bunch of Nancy Drew stories. And ever since, uh, her pioneering, uh, creation hit the boards, stereotypical uh, teen detective has been a uh, female in the same way that the stereotypical armored knight has been male. And so we sort of leaned into that and uh, inspired perhaps by Veronica Mars, the greatest television show uh, of the millennium so far. Uh, we sort of took the notion of playing with, uh, with uh, noir and class and other big issues uh, through that Nancy Drew lens, which Veronica Mars proved was not just popular, but darned interesting. Uh, and so we did a game about playing high school students who solve crimes. We, in this case, is myself, uh, the amazing Emily Care boss, who is a legendary role-playing talent uh, in and of her own self, and Lisa Steele, who works as uh, a, I, I think, a, a, a criminal lawyer in uh, Massachusetts. And so she knows all the stuff about crimes and mysteries and, and, and uh, spatter evidence and stuff like that. So we had her uh, to backstop us on the mystery segment. We had Emily making sure that the game was human and humane and, and cool and neat. And me plugging in gumshoe and saying, Veronica Mars, 
Veronica Mars <laughs> every so often. And uh, the the result, I think, uh, speaks for itself. It's a it's a pretty good game. Lots of people have uh, told me they enjoy it. Certainly, it uh, did what it says on the tin. And uh, like I said, like uh, you say, it's available from the good people at Evil Hat. Right. And the, the mechanical innovation there is uh, social combat is relationships. Level. Oh, the, yeah, that's the other one. There's two mechanical in- innovations. One is relationships, where rather than having a firearm skill, you have a uh, well. First of all, you shouldn't be having it. You're in high school, for God's sake. Um, uh, but you have uh, parents and, and other adults who you have a relationship with. Who you can borrow their skills for a for a thing. So your your mom works in the uh, in the in the coroner's office. You can get her to get you a police report, and that takes and that spends from your relationship. So you have to repair that relationship in a uh, uh, interpersonal scene. Uh, the other element, as you say, is the combat has been truncated down to barely nothing, but social combat has been blown up because that's the real stakes in high school. Is uh, are you in with the cool kids? Uh, are you a laughing stock when you go into the lunchroom? Uh, can you uh, operate within those uh, the confines of school society uh, correctly? And those elements that you have to maintain your social relationships with your peers, as well as with the grownups whose uh, uh, resources become you, you need to solve some of these mysteries, uh, presents you with the sort of dramatic engine that keeps the stories boiling, just as in Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars. Uh, so that uh, gives you your uh, basics, not just on how the underlying engine works, but on what flavor of gumshoe you need. There's no core, generic, bland, boring, uninteresting. You can't actually use it to play a core book called Gumshoe, uh, but all of the different rule sets that we've talked about all have their version of Gumshoe embedded in them, so you just need the one uh, book, whether that's the Esoterrorists or Knights Black Agents or the four books all together that form the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, every version of Gumshoe has everything you need to play that version of Gumshoe, so I'm sure those of you who don't yet have it on your shelves will now go and run and pick one of those up, but in the meantime, uh, we have another segment after this commercial. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us we are once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time, at the behest of Patreon backer Ronan Kennedy, uh, Ken, you have been asked 
to uh, take the uh, 1916 Easter Rising in Ireland and make it less terrible. <laughs> uh, Ronan asks how to replace the Easter Rising with an event with a positive outcome. Yes. Actually, he said how to stop the Easter Rising, but I have slightly, I've slightly massaged it in yeah, order to right. uh, widen your uh, uh, choices. Stop the Easter Rising. Goodness me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, that is my first answer. Uh, but before I get to my first answer, we should get to my zeroth answer, which is tell us about the Easter Rising, Ken. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in there. Right. Um, uh, the Easter Rising happens in on Easter of 1916. The uh, hated British have been occupying Ireland for uh, 300 years, and the lovely Irish are sick of it. Uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which is the precursor to the IRA, um, are planning a military revolt uh, to throw off the, the yoke of the hated British, um, perhaps due to something innate within the Irish political structure at the time, perhaps with something innate due to uh, revolutionary forces, uh, the planning process gang aft aglay. And they wound up sort of rising in some areas with barely any weapons and held out for six days, mostly in the city center of Dublin, and uh, got themselves massacred by the British Army. Right. There were uh, nearly 500 people killed, most yeah. of them civilians, mm -hmm. uh, many more injured. Um, and then lots of arrests uh, to attempt to round up the Irish Republican Brotherhood with uh, the effect that that didn't actually do it. Uh, they made a number of martyrs and a number of heroes that uh, played a very important role in the next Irish rising against uh, the hated British, which was uh, the Irish uh, Revolution, which became the Irish Civil War, because as I perhaps implied earlier, Ireland. So what do you, uh, how do you make uh, these events uh, less terrible? Okay. Uh, the first way to do it, and one assumes that the what we want is for the hated British to stop running Ireland. The the, the first suggestion that I have is uh, the 1893 Home Rule Act. Uh, it was the second attempt at home rule for Ireland, which would have established something like what eventually happened after the uh, uh, the Irish Revolution in the uh, 1910s and 20s, uh, which was a protectorate uh, with the British maintaining uh, military dominance over the island, which lasted until World War II and the British suddenly needed to go off and do something else. Uh, the same sort of thing probably would have happened if uh, the Home Rule Act of 1893 had passed. The Home Rule Act of 1885 or 1886 had not passed, uh, but the Prime Minister, uh, William Gladstone, who uh, lost his job for that one, like a, like a mensch, ran on reintroducing Irish home rule if he got reelected. And sure enough, he got, uh, the party comes back into power, he gets reappointed Prime Minister, and um, uh, starts on the second draft. This time, he says, I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing. I'm going to freeze out the rest of the cabinet. I'm going to write it at night uh, and then spring it on everyone. And it turns out when you are um, uh, an elderly British prime minister who is maybe not so good with the math, uh, that is not the way to write a bill. Because when it was presented, there were a number of fairly uh, uh, lurid drafting errors that caused it to lose momentum, caused a lot of bad feelings in commons. Obviously, the cabinet officials who were frozen out were not going to help it at all, which if you've seen any British um, uh, television show tells you you're doomed. Uh, it passes in the commons because Gladstone is Gladstone and then goes down to egregious defeat in the House of Lords, uh, uh, 41 to 419, uh, which is a pretty big number, you have to admit. 
But I think that if one went back in time, presented Gladstone with a correctly drafted Irish Home Rule Bill, and uh, maybe uh, convinced yeah, the... Look, uh, I know you've given up working with others, but, yes. but see how, how finely uh, proofread this is. And how delicious this port is. Yeah. Yes. And I think that with a, with a correct, uh, bill, a, a bill that is, uh, not self-contradictory and, and doesn't make math errors, um, he doesn't have the problems in the house, then getting it through the House of Lords, admittedly, is still a matter of getting individual, um, uh, beverage preference or blackmail information on about a hundred members of the House of Lords. But I don't think that it's an impossible situation, assuming that the first presentation of it is presented as a sort of a fait accompli. And again, in 1914, the third Home Rule Bill does get through uh, the House of Commons uh, three times and much more narrowly fails in the House of Lords. And eventually, uh, it's one of the reasons that the House of Lords stops getting to veto things is because they're being big jerks about uh, Irish Home Rule. Yeah, weird about how all the big landowners would not want yeah. hmm. Hmm, strokes chin. So the trouble, of course, with the 1914 Home Rule Bill is suddenly in 1914, the British government is got other priorities than giving Ireland home rule, uh, specifically the opposite of that, of uh, enlisting as many Irish people as they possibly can to send them to fight the Kaiser because it's World War One, And that is my other departure, um, assuming I can't just prevent World War One, a consummation devoutly to be wished. So in some, in, in some senses, the way to get the Ireland that we have pretty much now is to um, uh, get Franz Ferdinand's driver uh, a, a couple of lessons in how to, you know, do a bootleg reverse. Uh, but if you <laughs> and, can't, and a Kevlar vest for the Kevlar vest for the for the for the Archduke. The if you can't just prevent World War One, thus allowing the Third Home Rule Bill to uh, uh, pass with uh, I don't want to say without controversy, without major controversy uh, by 1914. By the way, the uh, Ulster unionists have got their own militia and, um, uh, started, uh, acting up. So there would have been troubles. There would have been all manner of, of, of bad blood and bad feeling. The question is, would it have been as bad if home rule had passed in 1914 as it did after a civil war had sort of gotten everyone exercised? Um, one has to hope no, but you can't say there wouldn't have been uh, troubles and terrorism because there certainly probably would have been, but it wouldn't have been as bad, maybe even as our Ireland and certainly would have been better than what actually happened. But let's say that what you actually want is yes, we want the Irish civil war. We just want to happen where the Irish have a chance to win it. And the secret weapon there is actually about 20,000 secret weapons, uh, rifles provided to the Irish rebels by the Germans, the good old Germans. <laughs> they loved the idea of having an Irish rebellion on the British rear, uh, rear flank. So they loaded up a, um, a Norwegian ship or actually a, a, a German ship under false flag called the Oud. They put uh, 20,000 rifles, a million rounds of ammunition, and lots of explosives on it. And they put Irish activist Roger Casement on a submarine, the U-19, and sailed them to Ireland to lead the rebellion. Uh, the trouble being, of course, that the British had cracked all the German codes. So when they knew about the Oud, the Royal Navy intercepts it. Uh, they have to scuttle the ship. They catch the U-19 and they, and they catch casement. So that's the end, really. The rising happens with no leadership and no guns and the result that we see. But it should not be impossible to buffalo good old room 40 about the whereabouts of the Oud and the whereabouts of Roger Casement, especially if you know ahead of time. Uh, maybe you don't want to go to the Germans and say, Hey, the British have broken your code, but maybe it would not be impossible to, um, uh, 
have the guy whose job it is to intercept that particular message out doing something else that day. And the message is instead intercepted by a charming fellow with a hip flask. And uh, the uh, Roland Laver never finds out about the Oud. The Irish rebels have weapons and leadership. And so the 16 Rising happens under Casement and Collins and not just poor uh, Michael Collins himself. And uh, the and, and the situation uh, at the very least becomes the Irish Civil War six years early or four years early, but perhaps presents the British with a short, sharp shock that they are forced to deal with in order to maintain focus on the Western Front, which is, in theory, the real war. So uh, in the best case scenario, which is that uh, home rule uh, passes uh, and uh, there's uh, there's agitation, but no civil wars, how does right. that and it happens change. early enough that you don't have these uh, nationalist militias forming up on both sides. Right. Uh, so what is the uh, uh, broader knock-on effect of that change on, on the timeline? I mean, the broader knock-on effect, first of all, is also World War One might not happen. I might also have prevented World War One that way. There is an argument, which I don't know if I believe, that one of the reasons that Kaiser thought that he could declare war on the continent was that the British would not get involved because, A, they'd never had a formal treaty with France to that effect. They guaranteed Belgium, but we all know what British guarantees are worth, and certainly the Kaiser does. But also, they were distracted by Ireland. Uh, and his thought was, they've just passed home rule. Uh, what better time than while they're trying to get that mess untangled to invade France? And it turns out there were many better times to invade France. Uh, that was a terrible time. And the British come in, uh, on their, on the basis of their treaty with Belgium and a basis of their informal entente with France to, uh, begin World War One properly. If the Germans know that the British attention is going to be across the channel immediately, maybe they think better of starting a war with no navy against a country that can blockade them. Uh, maybe they think better of the whole stupid shooting match and, and go on with their lives in a more productive fashion. Or maybe they figure out some other, uh, way to diplomatically cripple Russia. Because certainly, or France, because certainly Bismarck had found it possible in the 1880s to do that, and it would not have been utterly impossible for German uh, statesmen to either have destabilized Russia the, basically the same way they did by shipping Lenin into it, or to have isolated France diplomatically uh, by creating a uh, rapprochement with the British after the fact that Britain and France were not at the time natural allies, uh, bore itself on the British voting public. Uh, and of course, the the follow-on implications of a uh, timeline without uh, World War One are so vast as to mm -hmm. exceed the powers of a podcast that has already had an hour of talking in it. So at this point, uh, we have to leave that. Perhaps uh, some uh, some kindly Patreon backer will, will ask you uh, uh, for that segment, but that segment is not this segment, and this podcast will uh, visit you again, folks. It'll, it'll land in your favorite ear canals a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from running out of pool points alongside such Patreon backers as Jason Denon. Michael Manival. Nostra Dunwich. Ruth Tillman. And Steve Sagetti. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest shirt design, Fun Ruiner. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.